Drug overdoses are killing San Franciscans at an increasing pace. Late last year, the health department published its plan to tackle this problem. But city leaders know every death is one too many. Until we get to zero. I don't know that we'll ever feel like we couldn't have prevented more deaths. That's Dr. Jeffrey Hom, the man leading San Francisco's overdose prevention efforts. And I'm Laura Wenis. This week, we'll hear about the city's plan to address the thousands of overdoses, hundreds of them deadly, that happen in San Francisco every year. Dr. Hom says fentanyl is proving so hard to manage because of the constant illicit supply and its incredible potency. But he's optimistic that the city can turn the tide on overdoses. Federal regulations have shifted a little, giving the city new opportunities to connect people to life-saving interventions. From the San Francisco Chronicle, this is SF Next, Fixing Our City. Dr. Jeffrey Hom was drawn to working on drug use as a public health issue on his first rotation as an intern. He worked in the transplant unit of a hospital with hepatitis C patients, some of whom had acquired the illness through drug use. I think that seeing sort of and experiencing the level of stigma that they face and their family's experience who were visiting them in the hospital really made this, to me, just an important issue to to think about and work on. He became the medical director of the Division of Substance Use, Prevention, and Harm Reduction in the Philadelphia Department of Public Health. And a few years later, he came back to San Francisco, where he'd gone to high school. He took on his current role as director of population behavioral health, overseeing the Office of Overdose Prevention. Last fall, the health department published a plan to prevent overdose deaths, which is an urgent mission. In 2021, 640 people died of accidental drug overdoses in the city. Last year, that number was 620. And three months in, we were on pace to reach 800 deaths this year. Fentanyl is the biggest killer. It was involved in the majority of those deaths. It's a synthetic opioid used clinically as a sedative or as a painkiller in severe cases. Its arrival on the black market has been devastating. Between 2015 and 2020, deaths involving fentanyl in San Francisco increased 4,600%. I wanted to know from Dr. Hom, how did this get so explosive and so out of control? Today's sort of opioid crisis was certainly fueled by the overprescribing prescription opioids, sort of in the late 1990s, early 2000s. That was sort of followed by a steep decline in the price of heroin. And the purity of heroin was also still pretty high at that point in time. Fentanyl is entirely synthetic. So as opposed to having to cultivate opium poppies and ultimately create heroin, fentanyl is made in the lab. So all those chemicals, it's very cheap to make. It's very potent. It can be shipped in from overseas into the United States where it can be synthesized and made. And then just the availability of it has really sort of just increased across the country. China is a major manufacturer of the chemical ingredients for fentanyl, as well as some Central and South American countries. Sometimes illicit fentanyl is finished and distributed from U.S. labs, though it's also brought into the country as a finished product. Hom says it's really difficult to stop the supply coming in because it can be shipped in different formulations, and there are many ports of entry. And the demand remains very high. Fentanyl has a very short duration of action. So people experience highs and then lows. They go into withdrawal very quickly on a very quick cyclical nature. And so need to sort of keep using frequently in order to stave off withdrawal symptoms. So I think what's important for 
people to know about fentanyl, that for individuals with a severe fentanyl use disorder, the motivation and the reason for using is not necessarily to feel high, it's to not feel sick. Is it harder to pursue treatment or to kind of endure withdrawal if the drug that you use is fentanyl versus other drugs? Fentanyl is unique in some regards in terms of our ability to use our traditional forms of treatment for opioid use disorder in that it's just it's so potent and that people who have had prolonged exposures to it develop a very high tolerance. And so our strategies for getting them onto medications need to be a little bit different. I do want to say that both buprenorphine and methadone, two of our FDA-approved medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder, are effective for treating individuals with fentanyl use disorder or fentanyl addiction, but it may require a slightly different dosing strategy. And that then requires additional levels of sort of education or training that healthcare providers may need to make sure that we are dosing the medications in the right way. One of the big fears around starting a medication is going into withdrawal. It's being put into withdrawal as a result of a medication like buprenorphine, or also known as Suboxone. And so what the literature has been showing us and what clinical practice is really sort of moving towards is a dosing strategy that starts people lower with buprenorphine, slowly works their way up to avoid precipitated withdrawal, but ultimately does get them onto the medication in a safe and effective way. This overdose plan is fairly new. Why now? What was it about last year that prompted the city to create an overdose plan? This crisis continues to evolve. How have we responded to those evolutions? How will we continue to react to changes in the drug market, the way drugs are consumed, in a way that will be effective in saving lives, reducing the negative effects of substance use, and engaging individuals in receiving you know, life-saving and, and other sort of resources that they may need to keep themselves healthy. Just to be very clear here, is this a plan to reduce overdose deaths or to reduce the number of people with substance use disorders or the number of people who are actively using substances in like a chaotic way? Are those even distinct goals? Like, are we trying to combat deaths or are we trying to combat drug use? I think this plan is aiming to do both of those. It is really to save lives and to prevent overdose deaths, but it is also to reduce the harms associated with drug use and to increase the number of individuals who are receiving treatment and who may ultimately, as a result of that, reduce and stop their use of drugs. Let's talk about harm reduction because that comes up in the report a few times. It's something that people, I think, sort of place as an antagonist to treatment. And in this report, it's spelled out quite clearly, or in this plan, that treatment and harm reduction services have historically been viewed as separate, mutually exclusive approaches, but they actually exist on a continuum. What does that mean? Those do exist on two ends of a large spectrum, where we recognize that there is not one-size-fits-all solution. What works for one individual, based on where they are with their substance use, may be different from another individual. And how can we align our resources, our systems of care, to align with people wherever they may be in the course of their substance use? So on one end of this continuum, you have overdose prevention programs, syringe access sites. And on the other end of this continuum, you have residential treatment programs, medication for addiction treatment programs, sober living facilities. And how do we make sure that that continuum is robust and strong for individuals so that they may move along the continuum? that an entry point may be 
a traditional quote-unquote harm reduction program, but that that then becomes a way in which they engage individuals who have been through treatment or who are in treatment. And that may be the way that they then move towards treatment as it relates to their use. If you sort of think about our harm reduction programs and providers, those that sort of identify themselves as offering harm reduction services, many of them offer access to medications for addiction treatment or referral pathways. And so this is sort of a continuum that we do see within the city. Medication treatment usually refers to methadone or buprenorphine, which replace opioids and control cravings and pain. In the city's overdose plan, these medications are compared to offering follow-up care to a heart attack patient. I wanted Dr. Hom to explain that. When I cared for patients in the hospital, when I was admitting them in the emergency department, our first goal was to address the immediate life-threatening, in some cases, illness that was putting someone at risk. Once we had sort of stabilized an individual and gotten them out of that highest risk period, it's not just sort of saying, okay, you know, now you're okay to go. You're fine now. Goodbye. What can we do? Exactly. How can we put you on medications that will help reduce your risk over the long term, right? How can we manage your illness? The same principle applies to substance use disorders and an opioid overdose. Someone comes in, we want to make sure that they are, that their breathing has resumed, that they are not dying of that overdose. But once we've gotten them out of that highest risk period and they are breathing again, how do we engage them? How do we sort of offer them services, offer them support in helping reduce their future risk? And that is sort of where this parallel is very apt, is that we very much want to make sure that we are saving their life by providing an intervention like naloxone. But once they are out of that immediate high-risk period, if they're interested in taking a medication at that point in time, that can reduce their risk of another overdose or of dying of an overdose by up to 50%, which is a huge, huge benefit. There are no other medications within medicine that I'm aware of that confer that degree of a mortality benefit, of a life-saving benefit for someone who is regularly taking it. And both buprenorphine and methadone have shown to, to offer that benefit to individuals with opioid use disorder. A moment ago, Hom mentioned naloxone. That's the drug that can reverse an opioid overdose. You might have heard it called Narcan, which is the brand name for a naloxone nasal spray. It's been crucial in reducing overdose deaths. People who use drugs or whose friends use drugs, as well as first responders and nonprofit workers, have reversed thousands of overdoses in San Francisco using naloxone. Overdose reversal is one of the primary reasons city leaders want to establish safe consumption sites, places where people can use drugs under the supervision of health workers ready to spring into action if someone overdoses. The idea is to keep someone alive long enough, through multiple overdoses if need be, to get to a place where they might seek treatment and recovery. The sites are controversial, as we explored in our last episode, but they also come up a lot in San Francisco's overdose prevention plan. Overdose reversal would be one of the services offered by wellness hubs. The idea is that these hubs, spread throughout the city, would also offer connection to services ranging from clean needles and connections to medical care, all the way to housing and treatment for substance abuse. One challenge is that San Francisco has tried this and didn't do well at connecting people to treatment. A facility called the Tenderloin Center, which was open for just under a year and billed as a place where people dealing with homelessness or addiction could go for help— quietly started allowing drug use on site after it opened. And it got fewer than 15 people into treatment, with a cumulative 20,000 visits to the site. I wanted to know if Hom is optimistic about the wellness hub idea, given that low rate. 
I think one lesson that we learned from the Tenderloin Center was that it was very, very large which could be intimidating for a lot of individuals to sort of seek services there. And so one of our hopes with wellness hubs is the idea that these would be smaller and neighborhood-based, tailored to meet the needs of communities in different parts of the cities as a way to engage individuals who are, again, at very high risk of an overdose by virtue of fentanyl being so prevalent in our drug supply here, and ensuring that the people have access to these life-saving resources so that there isn't sort of one location that everyone is expected to come to. I am hopeful that we will have these in San Francisco. Do you get the sense that there's support from residents as well? I think that's going to be a a sticking point in terms of locating them. <laughs> locating and citing one of these wellness hubs or a number of different interventions that we might want to pursue within San Francisco is a challenge. But I think we've also sort of seen from other parts of the world that these are life-saving endeavors, that they can address a lot of the concerns that community members do share with us around public drug use around discarded syringes and discarded paraphernalia, which I do recognize are, are common and understandable concerns that people do have. And a wellness hub could help address those by providing a space for individuals who do use drugs and who are at risk of an overdose to be supported and be cared for. Hom knows that not everyone who uses drugs is ready to seek treatment. In fact, he cites a pretty eye-opening statistic about how many people don't even recognize they have a problem. We'll hear about that after a break. Before we go, a reminder that we want to hear from you. We want you to have a voice on this podcast, too. Do you know someone who's making a difference in the city or have a solution that you want the city to pursue? Send us a voice memo or just an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. I've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey Hom, director of the Office of Overdose Prevention within the City Health Department. We've been talking about how the city's fentanyl problem got so out of hand and about reversing potentially deadly overdoses with naloxone. But the goal ultimately is to help people recover. I wanted to know, how do you get people into treatment, especially if they don't want to go? You're right. So not everyone is ready. If we sort of think about approaching individuals who who may not be ready with compassion, with establishing sort of environments that are free of stigma or free of shame so that when they are ready to seek treatment, that we have it available for them. Someone cannot access that if they have died. Someone who is dead cannot engage in treatment. And so, yes, it may take some time and it can be hard to see individuals experiencing sort of overdose reversals again and again and being sick from their illness, but really approaching them with, we're still here to offer services if that's treatment or if it's more naloxone, if that's what you need, we really want to make sure that you have those so that you are staying alive, that you are as healthy as you can be, and that when you are ready for treatment, that we have it available for you. How well would you say San Francisco is doing on being there to make that offer for people who are ready? So I think as a city, we have made a lot of progress and we do have treatment, treatment that is available for individuals who are seeking it. We have a range of programs along that continuum that are available, including buprenorphine and methadone for individuals with opioid use disorder. We are working to expand access to treatment for stimulant use disorder, people who are individuals who are using cocaine or methamphetamine. A lot of the considerations when it comes to treatment are related to federal law. 
One of the big changes that has actually happened federally since the release of our report and our plan is that there was a change in federal drug policy that no longer requires a specific waiver or a certificate that was previously required in order to prescribe buprenorphine. And that was a really big barrier to individuals accessing buprenorphine in a number of different settings, including emergency departments and including primary care. I do want to talk about kind of federal regulation around this because I also looked up the term contingency management while I was reading this report. I was like, this will be something bureaucratic and boring. But apparently, (laughs) this is more like giving rewards or incentives to people for sticking to a treatment regimen. And a barrier is that those rewards can be considered kickbacks and threaten people's health care and other federal benefits, which is kind of like blew my mind and made me wonder, like, how do you do anything in this system? It's it's so rigid. Like, it's so punitive. We have a very complex, I think, healthcare system to begin with. Contingency management is an example of some of the challenges that we do face in making sure that evidence-based treatments are available and reaching everyone who may be interested in pursuing it. It is an effective form of treatment, but it really has been underutilized because of some of these concerns that have been raised around the federal drug policy and concerns about a kickback statute that exists. I will say that I think it's really notable that this year, California Medicaid or Medi-Cal is piloting the use of Medi-Cal dollars to support contingency management as a treatment for stimulant use disorders, recognizing the benefit of this approach. And so our goal as articulated in the plan is to really increase the availability of this. And several providers in the city are participating in the state's Medi-Cal pilot around contingency management later on this year. At this point, I asked about the demand for medication treatment. Is there enough of it to go around? We do have very short wait times for accessing methadone programs in San Francisco, our buprenorphine programs. We have an office-based buprenorphine induction clinic in San Francisco that the rates of enrollment have increased significantly year over year over the past several years. We have a pharmacy that is now sort of working to deliver medications to areas of the city where there is less pharmacy access to the medication, really trying to make sure that we have addressed every sort of barrier that we can to someone who is seeking one of these medications. Access to medication treatment has gotten better. San Francisco has started delivering buprenorphine to patients at their homes in permanent supportive housing. In April, first responders also started giving buprenorphine to patients who need it before they even get to the hospital. And there's more expansion to come. Is every primary care provider offering these buprenorphine? Uh, No. Do we want to see more primary care providers offer this medication and incorporate this into their practice? Absolutely, yes. I believe, as a primary care doctor, that this is something that we can and should do and want to see more of it being offered in our primary care clinics across the city. Let's talk about residential treatment. There's 500 residential and step-down beds in the city with 70 more on the way. How does that compare with demand or need in the city? I think one thing is that we are very conscientiously working towards is really trying to estimate and quantify the unmet need. Oh, we don't know. I'll let Dr. Hom explain why we don't really know the extent of the need. But first, let me give you some numbers to illustrate what we do know about demand. If you just look at wait times, San Francisco is doing pretty well in terms of getting people into treatment. 
City data shows it often takes less than a day to access medication treatment. The median wait time for residential treatment varies by the path you take to get there. For those coming from hospitals or certain other programs, it's less than a day. For others, it's four days after an assessment is done. But that's for people seeking treatment. A lot of people don't do that. According to national surveys, over 95% of individuals who are believed to have a substance use disorder do not seek treatment because they don't recognize or believe that they have a problem that warrants treatment. And so I think one of the things we grapple with is, is recognizing and helping individuals identify those behaviors early to be able to connect them to services. But that then sort of requires thinking about how do we reach a population that may not necessarily recognize that their behavior is concerning. People sometimes say, like, someone who's using drugs just needs a wake-up call. And I think that sort of leads to this advocacy for a more punitive approach, a more carceral approach, a more law enforcement-based approach. There is a note in this plan that studies have shown that people leaving incarceration had 37 to 129 times higher risk of dying of an overdose in the first two weeks after release compared to people who were not incarcerated. Given that, I imagine that you're not exactly an advocate for locking people up. But what should we do instead, you know, to speak to that wake-up call, tough love, law enforcement kind of demand? Just as there are many different paths to addiction, there are just as many paths to recovery. There is no sort of one-size-fits-all recovery plan for everyone, depending on their experiences, their life circumstances, their values, what they are pursuing. My focus and support of medications is not to diminish the real recovery that many individuals have obtained by simply sort of stopping their use of a substance. In some cases, that is something that they have come to after attempting you know, use of a, of a medication. In other instances, they've just sought to stop their use. That recovery is valid. But so is the recovery for individuals who seek to receive treatment with buprenorphine and methadone. With regards to individuals who are leaving jails or prisons, their risk of an overdose during those first couple of weeks after being released is so high in many instances because they have lost the tolerance that they had when they were before they were incarcerated. And they if they use the same amount as they used before, they can certainly have an overdose. And too often, fortunately, that is a fatal one, as those statistics sort of showed. I don't believe that we should view our jails and prisons locally or nationally as ways that people begin to enter treatment. I want to make sure that we would have the systems and the services in place for individuals before or after they are within jail to also you know, pursue recovery. And so I think that ensuring that we have programs that can provide that post-release care are really important. San Francisco's jails are offering medications, providing it, offering naloxone to individuals when they leave. The jail is, is very focused on that. But other jails around the country are not. And I think that's where I do worry that individuals, through no choice of their own, are being forced to abstain and go through withdrawal. There are metrics in the plan for a certain percentage reduction in various measurable outcomes to determine whether this is like th those are goals. But for you personally, what will make you say, we've done a good job here. This is working. This is a success. To me, when I look at all of these numbers, 
is that declines in overdose are encouraging to me because those are lives saved. Even though these, you know, I talk about statistics, it's the people who died were not just numbers. You know, they are individuals. They are members of our San Francisco community. They are mothers, daughters, brothers, sisters, sons, friends, families, family members. And every life that is saved is something to be recognized and acknowledged. That said, again, that around 600 people a year die of drug overdoses in the city is unacceptable. In its overdose prevention plan, the city calls for an increase in services, including overdose prevention and treatment for substance use. City leaders also want to do more community engagement, beef up collaboration between departments, and set up robust data tracking. The plan sets a long list of specific goals, including reducing fatal overdoses by 15% and increasing the number of people getting medication treatment by 30% by 2025. But when I asked Hom how he would judge whether the plan has been a success, he acknowledged that ultimately, we're talking about trying to end overdose deaths completely. I don't know that that'll ever say this work is done until we get to zero. I don't know that we'll ever feel like we couldn't have prevented more deaths. I hear and share the concerns that people across the city have expressed about this crisis about what they're seeing in their neighborhoods. And we really want to be able to address all the needs that we certainly do hear about across the city, save lives, and reduce the harms that we see associated with drug use. Dr. Hom, thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. That was Dr. Jeffrey Hom, director of the city's Office of Overdose Prevention. You can read the full plan for yourself at sfgov.org, and we'll put a direct link in the show description. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com to get in touch, or you can DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Coming up on SF Next Fixing Our City, we'll dig into the city's budget with Supervisor Connie Chan over an iconic San Francisco soup. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.